If you've been counting, we have now been studying in the book of Acts for about 13 weeks. And we've covered a lot of history and we've covered a lot of biblical truth. For example, we studied the arrival of the third person of the Holy Trinity, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, as we looked at the day of Pentecost, that glorious day when God's Spirit fell upon those who were gathered in the upper room, when they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, and how they were all empowered to go out and and reach the nations for Christ as they began to turn the world upside down with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We also have learned a whole lot in this series about missions and about evangelism. And we've watched, as we've watched, how the early first Christians obeyed our Lord's command to share the gospel in Jerusalem and in Judea and in the outer parts of the world. We've also looked very closely at the uh, lives of some true spiritual giants, men like Peter and Philip and uh, Stephen and, and Barnabas. We've even studied the greatest conversion story of all when Saul, a persecutor of the early church, had an unexpected encounter with the Lord while on his road to Damascus or on the road to Damascus. And that experience began a transformation of turning Saul into Paul, the world's greatest missionary and evangelist we've ever known. The book of Acts has also helped us to understand that, that God's grace-filled love extends to all people, men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every color, because the ground is truly level at the foot of the cross, isn't it? We studied the importance of the power of prayer in our lives, and last week we were reminded of some important principles about church unity and specifically how to deal with conflict between Christians. But there's one major thing that we have seen going on throughout this book that we haven't really addressed that needs to be addressed, and that's what I want to do today. Uh, it, it's this undeniable truth of how God continually guides and directs his people. In fact, many scholars refer to the book of Acts as the book of guidance because there are so many examples of God's specific guidance recorded within its pages. Think about it, the book begins with the apostles being guided to Jerusalem into the upper room and were told to wait there until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Two different times when apostles were imprisoned, God sent an angel to guide them out of the jail. In Acts chapter six, before appointing the first deacons, the apostles sought and received guidance from God. Philip was guided by the Lord to a specific road where he met and ministered to an Ethiopian official. And because of the guidance that God had given him, the gospel, the result of this encounter, the gospel was taken to the African continent. And immediately afterward, Philip was guided, or really he was actually instantly transported to another place of ministry called Azotus. Ananias was guided by God to go and to pray for Saul. 
the persecutor of the church. God gave him the exact address where Saul, who would soon become Paul, was staying. Peter was also guided to the house of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And I could go on and on because this book of Acts shows us over and over how God does indeed guide his people through life. It's just like how Isaiah described the Lord of hosts in Isaiah 28, 29, when he said, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. And this wonderful truth that God does guide and direct his people should make our ears perk up because we all want, and even more so, we all need his guidance in our life. I mean, life is full of decisions. Our days feel like one fork in the road after another. So we really need help. We need help in knowing which way to go. When we're younger, we wonder whether we should learn a trade or if we should go to college. And then if we choose college, we have to decide what our major in college is going to be. We wanna know what career is best for us. We want guidance in our marriage. We need help in how to raise our children. We want, and yes, we really need help in managing our financial resources in a biblical way. The list is endless. But I think you know what I mean. Every one of us needs guidance in this life. In fact, God's guidance is especially important to us since we live in this fallen world and where the lines of morality are blurred to such a degree that it makes makes it harder and harder for us to know what is right and what is wrong. So the fact is that God leads and directs his people down the road of life. That is very, very good news for us because in so many ways, we are lost sheep in need of a shepherd, aren't we? And so the question becomes, how do we access the omniscient guidance of our, that, our, that our heavenly father offers us? In other words, how do we discern God's will when it comes to making life's decisions. This is the question I wanna try to answer this morning as we come to another example in the book of Acts of God guiding his children. And it's found in Acts chapter 16, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about his direction given to the apostle Paul on his now second missionary journey. So in preparation, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, all the scriptures will be up on the screen behind me. But while you're looking for Acts chapter 16, let's take a step back, if you don't mind, to last week. Because when we last left the Apostle Paul, he and his fellow missionary Barnabas had parted company after a heated argument. Uh, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on this new, uh, this new missionary trip. And Paul strongly disagreed with it because he, if you recall, John Mark had abandoned them in another one and Paul had a chip on his shoulder about the whole thing. And since they couldn't, and since they wouldn't resolve the issue, it ended up causing a permanent breakup of this dynamic missionary duo from Antioch. So Barnabas took John Mark and they went to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and they headed toward his hometown 
of Tarsus. And there, he and Silas stopped along the way to visit and to encourage each of the churches that Paul had started on his first missionary journey. And I'm certain as he journeyed along, Paul must have been thinking about this disagreement that he had with Barnabas. I mean, these guys had been close friends. How could he not walk around and not think about it? In fact, I believe this led Paul to to follow Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 18 and to take responsibility for his part in their quarrel. And I further believe that Paul eventually prayed and asked God to forgive him for his wrong way, especially when he remembered how Barnabas had stood up for him among the Christians there who, as you recall, doubted his Damascus Road experience. I'm talking about the fact that the believers did not want to give Paul a second chance after his many years of persecuting them. And and, and, and I believe that this must have led Paul to see that Barnabas was right. John Mark did deserve a second chance, the same second chance that God had given Paul. And the the reason that I say all of this must have happened is because we know that Paul eventually did change his stance regarding John Mark. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter four, he said, bring John Mark because he is helpful to me in the ministry. Paul even asked Timothy to bring John Mark with him to Rome when Paul was in prison. So Paul also must have repented of his attitude toward Barnabas because in 1 Corinthians 9, he writes approvingly of Barnabas' ministry. And I'm sure that Barnabas must have acknowledged his his part in their dispute as well. So I think it's important to point out that when we see this kind of thing happen with these heavyweights of the faith, if you will, then we too can rediscover and realign ourselves with God through our own repentance and things that are going on in our life. I mean, what I mean is that we know God would not have wanted Paul and Barnabas to to part angrily with each other and never make good on that relationship. And as I said last week, it is never God's will for us to argue to the point where where our Christian fellowship is broken. But when Paul and Barnabas cooled off, They realized their sin and they repented of it and they were once able, they were once again able to join God in his will and in his work. I say this because good eventually came from this split. Things happened that I believe God willed to have happened. For example, after the dispute, the missionary effort was now doubled. Instead of just Paul and Barnabas going out as one team, two teams eventually went out, Paul and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark. Plus John Mark was able to prove himself by being indispensable, an indispensable helper to Paul during during the years to come. He was also credited for writing the book of Mark. Another good thing that came from all of this, and I think is another indication that that Paul was back in line with God's will, was the fact that on this second missionary journey, Paul met and enlisted two new mission team members. First, there was Timothy. He was a young believer 
who would also play a vital role in this mission's movement. Timothy is mentioned for the first time in this morning's scripture reference, and Timothy was a pastor, which means he and Paul made another great team. You see, Timothy was gifted by God to shepherd the churches that Paul had started. And secondly, when they came to Troas, Paul met and enlisted a a physician that we all know very well named Luke. You'll notice in verse 10, which we will read in just a minute, when referring to Paul and his companions, it no longer says they, but the words in 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 the scriptures say we. This is because Luke, the man that God used to author the book of Acts, has now joined the team. So so high point, this shows us that when we stubbornly disobey God and, and, and disregard his will, if we will repent of that, we can rediscover his guidance and we can rejoin his efforts whenever we desire. And with all that in mind, I wanna go ahead now and I wanna read Acts chapter 16, verses one through 15. I'll be reading today from the, the New International Version. It says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. I'm talking about the discussion they had over whether a Gentile could become a Christian and not have to become a Jew first. They're they're telling them about the decision that was reached in that council. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we, there's that word, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart, to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to stay at her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. 
So I want to use this and other portions of the book of Acts, this book of guidance, to answer a very important question for us today. How does a person discover God's will? How do we access this much-needed guidance from our Heavenly Father? Well, first of all, you must be a Christian. Romans 8.14 says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You see, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God adopts you as his child. And when this happens, his Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit now resides in us. And one of the Holy Spirit's purposes is to reveal the will of God to you. Jesus promised in John 16, 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So only Christians like the believers in Acts, as well as you and me, have the spirit's presence within them. And the reality is that, that we must have this, this inside help if we're ever gonna be able to hear God's guidance for our life in a clear manner. Because remember, Jesus did not say, I will show you the way. He said to us, I am the way, right? Story is told of a Christian missionary who got lost in an African jungle with nothing around him but, but bush and just a few cleared places. While he was wandering, he came across a native hut and he asked the owner if he could lead him out of the jungle. The native said that he could, and so the missionary said, well, then please show me the way out. And the native responded to him, well, then follow me. So they walked around and they hacked their way through the unmarked jungle for more than an hour. And the missionary started to get a little bit nervous, a little bit worried. And he asked the man, he said, are you sure this is the way? Where is the path? And the native said, Buana, in this place, there is no path. I am the path. In very much the same way, Jesus is the path to God's will. There, and there's no other way for us to access it. So in order to take full advantage of God's wisdom for you and I in our everyday life, you must get to know this wonderful counselor in a personal way. Now, if you're a Christian, or yeah, if you're a Christian, you may be wondering exactly how does God speak to you through the Holy Spirit. Well, basically, this inner guidance is a product of spiritual growth. I mean, the longer we walk with Jesus, the deeper our relationship becomes, and the more, I believe, we are able to recognize his guidance. Think of it this way. The longer two people are married, or the longer that you work with someone or are friends, the more you get to know the other person. It can almost get to the point where you can read what's on that other person's mind. You, you, you almost get to the point where you have this sense that you know what they're going to do or what they're going to say and what they want in certain situations. Those of you who are married, you completely understand this thing that I'm talking about here. You even get to know the point of what the other person is thinking before they speak it. 
Because in your many years together as a married couple, you have learned all kinds of things, intimate details, what makes someone tick, and you know what they're thinking. Well, that's how it is when you are tuned in to the Spirit of God in your life. The longer you walk with him, the more you develop this keen sense of what he wants you to do, and yes, what he does not want you to do. But in addition to this, when we are outside of his will, there comes a feeling of unrest in our hearts. And that feeling tells us that we need to slow down and we need to begin to listen to God's quiet promptings. And when we yield to those promptings, we then experience that sense of quiet peace. Charles Swindoll put it this way, God's peace acts as an umpire of our hearts. I like that. Now, another thing we must understand as Christians is this. God's main concern is to grow you and I spiritually so that we will become more conformed in the image of his son, Jesus. You see, our human tendency is always to focus solely on on our calling, on, on where we should go and how I should get there and what I should do when I get there. But God's main concern is the process that he is taking us through daily. And within that process comes spiritual maturation, making us more like Jesus. I like what John Ortberg wrote. He said, it only makes sense to ask God for guidance in the context of a life committed to seeking first the kingdom. So the first way to access God's guidance is you must be a Christian. But then secondly, you must admit you need God's guidance. That's important. Because a lot of us don't think we need guidance. And I got a little truth for you, you do. I do. We all need God's guidance. In in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. I think that these familiar words caution us to be wary of, of prideful human reactions to complex situations that pop up in our lives. We need to humble ourselves and we need to realize just how desperately It is that we need God's help in our daily life. See, the problem is when we tend to go to God only after we have stubbornly gone our way and failed miserably, and this this always causes us problems because our, our human perspective is limited. And so we do it our way thinking we know when we should have gone God's way and we come crawling back to him. The point is we need God's direction. There isn't much you should do without asking God for his direction first. Now, you know, I'm I'm not talking about what to eat for breakfast or something like that. I'm just talking about the decisions that you need to make. I've made some stupid decisions in my life. We've made bad decisions as a couple. We made one major decision. We just did something that we thought was right. But it wasn't right. And later we found a scripture that told us what we did was wrong. And And it was a financial matter where we helped somebody. And sometimes you think, well, I'm a Christian. I know this is the right thing to do. If I have the means to be able to do this, I should do it. But then we found out the Bible in this particular instance clearly said you don't do this. But we didn't know that and we didn't read that and we made the decision. We paid for that decision. 
we need God's guidance. There is no decision that really is too small not to ask God about. I read an article titled 178 Seconds to Live. And it was about 20 airline pilots who were all very capable pilots when it came to flying in clear weather. But they had not taken instrument training, that is learning to fly strictly by the instrument panel and not through sight, through, through visual access. Well, each of these pilots was put into a flight simulator and they were instructed to do whatever they could to keep the airplane under control while they were flying into thick, dark clouds and stormy weather. The title of the article came from the fact that within that flight simulator, all 20 pilots crashed within the average of 178 seconds. It took these seasoned flyers with skilled intuition less than three minutes to virtually kill themselves once they lost their visual reference points. And it proved that they needed other guidance in order for them to fly correctly. Well, the truth is, no matter how smart you and I think we are, no matter how many real life experiences that we have under our belt, we still need to realize that our human judgment is always limited at best. And many times, it's just flat out wrong. Therefore, we need God's omniscient mind regarding the matters of life. And yet we ignore his inner guidance because we think we know better. We think that we should go in our own direction. This reminds me of another story of a Scottish woman, I think I told you this once before, who sold thread and buttons and, and shoestrings and she did it door to door out in the countryside. Whenever she came to an unmarked crossing, she would toss a stick up in the air and she would go in the direction of wherever that stick pointed her. One day, she was seen tossing the stick several times and a person said to her, why did you toss the stick more than once? And she replied, because it keeps pointing to the left and I wanted to go on the road to the right. <laughs> My point is, it is simple. Often we're a lot like this woman. God wants us to go left, but we wanna go right because we think it's the right thing to do when he's made it clear that it's not. We know what God's will is, and we may even hear his, his still small voice clearly, but the problem is we don't always wanna follow it. We stubbornly think that we know what is best for us. While the fact remains, no one knows what is better for us than God himself. After all, he created us. In Hebrews 4.13 it says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I guess you could say that a required character trait of getting God's guidance is humility. We must admit that we can't find our way through this life without his help. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good uh, attitude for each one of us to have. Well, the third thing we must do in order to discern God's leading is to utilize the guidance tools that he has given us. And he has given us several. And of course, the first one is the scriptures, the Holy Bible, the word of God, whatever you wanna call it. 
In fact, we saw the Christians in Acts 15 using this tool. Remember, they were trying to determine God's will when it came to Gentiles who were professing faith in Jesus. And they said, no, they needed to become a Jew first and be circumcised, then they could become a Christian. So when they went to Jerusalem to discuss this, they went to the scriptures and to receive their guidance. And it was there that, that Peter pointed out that throughout the scriptures, the Jews had not been able to keep the law of God. And he said, so why put this yoke on the Gentiles? Something that we ourselves have not even been able to bear. All this proved that the law was not sufficient to save. So it was wrong to require the Gentiles to do so. And then James, at that same, same meeting, quoted the, the prophet Amos, who said that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And even all Gentiles, he said, would bear God's name. Well, the fact is that guidance from the Lord is always in accordance with his written word. If anybody ever tells you that God told them to do something that contradicts his written word, I can assure you they did not hear from God. It was probably the pizza that was talking to them that they had eaten the night before. God will never lead you to do something that runs contrary to the perfect wisdom found within the word of God. Now you'll find scriptural wisdom in the form of both precepts and principles that will guide you through your life's decisions. Precepts are clearly marked statements like thou shalt not steal. It's like the signs that are on I-5 that read speed limit 70 miles per hour. It's a law that I imagine everyone in this room has broken at one time or the other, by the way. But according to those signs, speeding is anything over 70 miles an hour. That's a precept. It's very clear, very easy for us to understand and to apply. But then there are also principles that are found in the scriptures. These are general guidelines to apply to various situations in life. For example, Jesus said that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. This principle is to be applied to all of our relationships with other people. It's like the signs in a neighborhood that say drive carefully. This may mean 25 miles an hour when the road is clear, or it may mean 10 miles an hour if children are playing nearby. Well, the principles and precepts found in the word of God will never ever steer you wrong. And please remember this, the most effective way to, to receive God's guidance is to study his written word. Now, I imagine most of us would prefer something easier. We would prefer something flashier. We want clouds to part. We want a visit from an angel or two. We, we want to hear God's booming voice in our dream at nighttime. And I don't know about you, but those things have never happened to me. So the fact is that the surest, most effective way to receive God's guidance is from the Bible. In Psalm 119, 105, I love this scripture, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And it surely is. The simple truth is about 95% of God's will, excuse me, God's will for our life is contained within the pages of the Bible. And the more you read it, the more you will begin to understand God's will for your life. 
in this Bible, in the word of God, God already told us how he wants us to live, how he wants us to love, how he wants us to talk, how to take care of our bodies, how to handle our money, how to pray, how to function as a family member, function as an employee, among many other things. So many of the decisions that we make in life are no-brainers because the best course of action is clearly spelled out for us already in the scriptures. If someone were to come to you and say, should I sell my house, take all the proceeds and buy lottery tickets, we could with absolute confidence say that according to the Bible, God would say no because his written word is clear about get-rich-quick schemes or attempting to earn our livelihood through chance. And it's also clear that a compulsion for us to strike it rich often leads to both spiritual and physical destruction. Should we tell the truth? The Bible says always, yes. No matter what circumstance, no matter what is at stake, we should always be truthful. Should we marry a non-Christian? The Bible says do not be unequally yoked. A believer married to a non-believer creates constant division in the home over how to live, over how to raise children, over what is right and what is wrong. So, so the scriptures would, would urge you not to marry a non-believer. Should we consider marriage a lifelong covenant? The Bible says yes. A covenant is a lifelong process, a promise, excuse me. It does not change with your feelings. Should, we, should I give my all in the workplace or do just enough to get by? The Bible makes clear to work hard as unto the Lord, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. But here's another point. The byproduct of hard work from dedicated people is that it garners favor in the eyes of those who you work for. And what comes from that eventually is more rewards for you. So yes, you should give it all you've got. The fact is that the, the clearest, most direct route to the guidance of God is through his revealed word, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Bible. And we often ignore it to our own peril. Well, the second tool that God gives us is common sense. This is what Paul was doing when he circumcised Timothy. Now, Paul's actions might seem a bit inconsistent in view of his recent stand against the legalizers that they met with at that Jerusalem council. But when you think about it, it was not. You see, Paul's concern was always for the defense and the propagation of the gospel. And he knew that in order for Timothy to have access to the synagogues where Paul went to share the gospel, that he would have to be circumcised. This little bit of surgery made complete sense, but you gotta hand it to old Timothy. The guy was a real trooper to go along with his plan. But as a missionary, Paul had enough God-given sense to know that he had to be willing to follow what 1 Corinthians 9.22 says, where he said, I have become... I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. So very often, to be at the center of God's will, it simply requires us to follow Paul's example and use the common sense that he has blessed us with. This reminds me of a story of a man who lived 
in a low-lying area near a river who didn't use his God-given common sense. A very rainy day was coming down in buckets. A man drives up in a Jeep. He says, sir, this area is about to be flooded. Hop into my Jeep. I'll get you out of here, get you to safety. And the man replied, said, no, no, I'm gonna stay here and I'm gonna trust in the Lord to take care of me. Well, pretty soon the water's swirling around his raised front porch area as he's sitting in a rocking chair and a man comes by in a boat. He says, sir, you need to get out of here. Get into my boat. The water's getting higher and higher. And the man responded. He said, no, I'm good. I'm gonna stay here and I'm going to trust in the Lord to take care of me. Well, finally, the water pretty much engulfed his entire house and he's sitting up on the peak of his roof when suddenly a helicopter comes and they drop a chair so he can be taken to safety. And the man shouts up to the rescuers, it's okay, I'm gonna stay here. I'm trusting in the Lord to take care of me. Well, the man drowned. When he got to heaven, he started to complain to the Lord. He said, hey, you didn't take care of me. And the Lord said, what are you talking about? I sent you a Jeep and I sent you a boat and I sent you a helicopter. What in the world else did you want from me? You see, seeking guidance from God does not mean that we are to be passive. God wants us to learn to use our brains, the common sense that he's given us. He wants us to become wise followers. So high point, when we face these important decisions, we must not be passive. We must be active. We must pray. We must seek guidance. We must exercise judgment and wisdom and initiative and, and choice and responsibility. After all, we were created in God's image and he is certainly not passive. I think this is what Paul meant in Romans 12.1 when he referred to the Christian walk as your reasonable service. So following God involves our using the reasoning powers and this wonderful mind that he has given to you and I. And then the third guidance tool that God has given us is the wise counsel of others. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds, who heeds counsel is wise. This is what Paul and Peter and James and the others did at the Jerusalem council while deciding what to do about this issue of non-Jews becoming a Christian. And this tool still works for us today. God often uses people to guide us to the center of his will. So when you face a decision, you'd be, you, you'd be very good to, be, to use the example of those people who were on that game show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I don't know if you remember watching that show, but they would use a lifeline. And they would call someone who, who they thought to be knowledgeable and someone who was mature and someone who was experienced. Well, you'd do yourself a good favor to do that within the body of Christ. But be careful, because even in the church, there are self-proclaimed counselors who love to inflict their knowledge on other people. But sometimes that can create more bad than good because there may not be any spiritual depth, any spiritual maturity in what they're saying to you. And they may give you some really bad advice. So my encouragement to you would be to, to approach someone who has spiritual depth, someone who's been around the block a time or two, 
Someone who you know has been serving the Lord most of their life and who are wise because you see it lived out in their day before you, day after day. People who you admire because they know we know that they've been around the spiritual block, so to say, a time or two. Those are the people that we are to ask. Those are the people that we should receive our input from. Proverbs 24, 6 says, in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. Think of the church as a smorgasbord of wise people who you can go to and get qualified counsel on most any given matter. I've done that before. I've done that when I've needed to make a difficult decision. I've, I've called on people who I respect, people who I know have wisdom and they discern the things of God. Think of it this way. It's not necessary for any of us to learn the hard way. We can learn from other people's mistakes, but we can also learn from other people's experiences. Amen? Well, the final tool I want to mention is clearly seen in Acts chapter 16, and it is the tool of providence. Providence is simply God opening doors for us in order to do his will, while at the same time closing doors that will lead us to things that are not his will. Revelation 3.8, the Lord says, see, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. In 1892, a book was written called Impressions by Martin Wells Knapp. And in this he wrote, if the Lord goes before us, he will open all doors before us and we shall not need ourselves to hammer them down. I love that. Listen, if, if, if it's never a sign of divine leading when a Christian insists on opening a door in his or her own way, while at the same time riding roughshod over all the other opposing things. If God is calling us to do something, folks, he will open the door in order for us to do it. And as I said here in Acts 16, we find a perfect example of this principle. After adding Timothy to the ministry team, Paul and his companions traveled from town to town, visiting the Christians and the churches that he had started. In Acts 16, 5, it said, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So things were going wonderfully well. Paul and his companions were in this pagan region where idol worship was, was prevalent, running rampant, yet people were coming to Christ and churches were being founded. Then they moved toward the Phrygian Galatian regions with very high hopes. But look at what happened in Acts 16, verses six through seven. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now remember, they had great success up to this point. Doors were open, green lights were shining, things were really working. But when they moved more central, into the more central and southern regions, God closed the door. They assumed then, because of that, that God was leading them northward. So they headed toward Mysia and Bithynia, but once again, a door was closed. And so they prayed for God's guidance, and Paul got a vision from the Lord. Acts 16.9, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
Now that could be, that would be similar to one of us standing on one of our beaches in, in California and feeling like God is calling us to China. Think of what this call would have required of Paul and his companions. They were in Asia and, and Macedonia was all the way across the Aegean Sea on the European side. This was another culture. This was another language. It was another continent. But Paul still responded to God's providential guidance. He didn't force his way through those closed doors. He humbly allowed God to guide him and he went through the only door open to him. Look again at Acts 16.10. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And when they arrived, they met a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. And the Lord opened her heart and she responded to the things that were spoken by Paul. And that led to the beginning of the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, and the church in Corinth. This was the first work of evangelism in Europe recorded in the New Testament. And God guided Paul to this wonderful ministry by providentially closing doors that he thought were open. And God guides us, folks, in the exact same way today. And if we can learn anything from the Apostle Paul here, it's that a closed door is guidance. More specifically, it is negative guidance. It's a form of guidance that keeps us from going where we are not called so that in God's time, we might end up where God is calling us. At times like these, when that happens, it can be very easy to become frustrated, to be uh, disheartened. We can't imagine that, that God would shut some of the doors that he does. So we try to explain it away by saying, well, maybe I did, we just made a mistake. Maybe we just need to work a little bit harder. But we must remember that when our Heavenly Father closes a door, he simply has his sights on something better for you. I want you to grasp this truth today. Don't get discouraged by closed doors. It means there's a better door that will open for you. There's always something better around the bend that you and I can't see, but the Lord clearly can. And you know, when you think about it as parents, we do the exact same thing with our children. When they start to crawl and walk, we, we put up those safety door locks to keep them from falling down or those gates from falling downstairs. We put safety locks on the drawers and the cabinets where our knives might be kept or, or chemicals uh, that might be harmful or, or even medicines. But here's the deal, we do that, but we open other doors for them. I'm talking about the doors where they can find safe toys and other things that benefit them and are not potentially harmful to them. So just as the book of Acts teaches us, God does guide and he does direct us through our daily life and he does it through the gentle leading of his Holy Spirit, through his written word, through the common sense that he has given us, through wise counsel from other believers, and through doors of providence. Scott, would you guys come up here and help me to close this down, the worship team, please? I just wanna say this morning that if you're at a crossroad, I encourage you to seek the Lord's will 
in these many different ways that I have pointed out this morning. Claim his promises in Psalm 32, eight, where he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eyes on you. It could be that you have a major decision to make in some area of your, some area of your life. That's not a stretch because we are often called on to make major decisions. And maybe up to this point, you've been in the habit of of going with your gut and not seeking God's will and God's direction in these areas. Maybe that has worked out for you at times and maybe it's caused you to fail miserably. I don't know, only you could answer that question. My point for this whole message here today is that God not only can guide you through your life, but more importantly, he wants to guide you through your life. It's not a burden to him for you to call upon him and ask him what he thinks. But this can only happen when you seek him for his direction. So today, I felt led to open this altar today to anyone who might be seeking direction, to anyone who may have a major decision to make. You desperately wanna go in the right direction. You desperately want to make the right decision. Because you, and you want to honor God through that decision. Well, the, the, the only way to make a move or a decision that truly honors God is to make him a part of the process, is to seek his face, to seek his will, because he will never steer you into a ditch. I've steered myself into a lot of ditches. He will never do that. And you do that through prayer. It's the best investment of time that you will ever, ever spend. Maybe God is calling some of you today to make a decision to turn your life over to Jesus. You've been sitting in here listening to this and you're not a Christian, but I know that even now, God is is guiding you. He is inviting you to become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Believe me when I tell you with all certainty that is God's will for your life. I say that without any hesitation. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God is not willing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Bible also says that in order to receive salvation, you must believe and confess. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to this earth and he walked among us and he lived a sinless and a perfect life. He showed us how to love. He healed. He did so many great things, but he was crucified. They put him to death. The blood that he shed, however, is the cleansing agent. It is the atoning agent for our sin. It is what wipes our sin away. We must believe that that happened and that he rose three days later. The confession part is we just say that in prayer. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you are the only way to the Father. You are the only way I can receive salvation. And you simply pray that to him. And he is just and he is true and he is faithful and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And the Bible says that you will become a new creation. So why don't you follow his sound leading today and come down and join us at this altar and receive him as Lord and Savior. Of course, maybe you don't have a decision to make this morning. That's a good thing. But you have some other need. Well, this altar is open for any kind of a need. You might have a financial issue. You might have a relational issue. 
might have a, 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 an occupational issue going on. This altar time is for anything that you might like to bring to the Lord's attention. I always like to say, you know, when you come down here, it's kind of like take your burden, lay it at the foot of the cross. And then when you get up and you go back to your seat, don't pick it back up with you. Leave it there. You share it with the Lord. You let him know what the issue is. He already knows. But he wants to hear what you have to say about it. And then you leave it. And you trust him. As that scripture said, trust in God with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, he will take care of you. He always does. Whatever it is, whether you're seeking God's guidance or you have some kind of a need, while the worship team sings, spend a few moments at the altar, and then we will close the service in prayer.
at the altar continue to pray thank you to close your eyes and bow with your heads in prayer we'll dismiss this service father we thank you for your word which gives us really everything we need father in order to live in this day and age thank you for your spirit which strengthens and empowers us and directs us thank you for your word that does the same thank you for our relationship with christ jesus our redeemer God, you've blessed us so much and we are a thankful people. I pray that whatever decisions that need to be made today among those at this altar, Father, that you would give them supernatural and divine wisdom and discernment in all matters. And Father, as a church, I pray that we would all learn to go to you first, not second or third, but first, and to seek your guidance and your wisdom in all areas of our life. Father, I pray that is we go our separate ways today that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places that we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have and make those conversations always be ones that build people up and not tear them down. And Father, as always, let us shine as bright lights in a very dark world. Give us an opportunity, Father, to share your goodness with someone else who may say, you have joy, and I'm not sure what that's about, but tell me how you got it. Whatever it is, God, I know you will open a door, as you always do. Give us the strength and the ability to walk through that door and to follow your leading and do something great for you and your kingdom. And Father, I also ask that between the time we gather together again, from now until next week, that you would keep us safe, keep us safe from sickness and disease, keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us. And as we leave here today, Lord, let us go in the love of Christ, the kind of love that you expressed as you walk this earth among us. And we ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.